Welcome to the Food Therapy Podcast, where we talk honestly and openly about mental health, diet culture, BS, and food freedom. We're your co-hosts. I'm Brittany Modell, owner of Brittany Modell Nutrition and Wellness. And I'm Lauren Sharp, owner of Empower Method Nutrition. We are food freedom registered dietitians who have struggled with mental health, poor body image, and disordered eating behaviors. We are on a mission to dismantle diet culture, normalize conversations around mental health, and empower you as you heal your relationship with food and your body. Let's get talking. Hello, and welcome back to the Food Therapy Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Sammy Sage, who is a co-founder and chief creative officer at Betches. She's the host of the Betches, Betches Sup, and Morning Announcements podcast. And in her spare time, she likes to scroll on her phone and stare at her dogs, Bruce Bader Ginsburg and Larry David. Welcome, Sammy. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. I feel like we it's it's long awaited that you know we've been, you know, DM friends. We're so excited. And uh now we're here. Yes. Let's hear all the things. Where should I start? Start with how did you create batches? For those who are listening, how did it how was it first created? What was the intention behind it and what has it evolved into? Yeah. So, I mean, I, we started it, I started it with my two, two of my childhood friends when we were in college, we were seniors at Cornell, just kind of fucking around. Um, and we started Betches as like a blog, um, where we were writing to kind of satirize the culture of the people around us. Um, not like in sort of a, not like a hatery way, but, you know, just kind of point out some of the ridiculousness of ourselves and the people we knew. And that blog went really viral really quickly. And that was sort of like where it all started. Um, but, you know, it's been, that was 11 years ago. And in that, in that time, obviously we have significantly evolved um, onto, you know, we've built an audience of almost 50 million people across all platforms, starting with starting with Instagram, with our multiple verticals that, you know, cover, obviously the main meshes Instagram account is kind of what everybody, you know, I think everyone really knows us for, but we we also have um, multiple content verticals with, that really cater to anyone's interests, like dating, politics, wellness, um, bride, bridal life, moms, true crime, so, you know, we really do run the gamut. You know, we got into podcasting, e-commerce, events, TikTok. So we've really, you know, tried to stay very nimble and evolve. Um, and I think that's helped by the fact that we've never, you know, taken investors. So we've always, you know, the business is fully self-run, self-funded. I mean, not like with our own money, but with the money the business makes, you know? Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been a really interesting, um, journey in working in media over the past 11 years, right out of college. So yeah. How would you, like, what would you say some of the biggest changes have been in the last like decade or 11 years when it comes to media and like the type of content people are consuming? I mean, everything, 
if you like starting at like the biggest, I know we're not like technically in like web three, but the fact that web three is even a thought that people are investing money in, um, that's a huge change that we're on sort of, I think the precipice of it's like getting going. Um, and we are thinking about how to, how to bring batches into that era. But, but I mean, culturally just the, some of, I think about, you know, I look back at like, or think about like really old tweets from not my own tweets, but like what other people were tweeting in 2011. And the vibe is just totally different. I mean, politically, Trump was tweeting about like Robert Pattinson and how he shouldn't take <laughs> Kristen Stewart back. And now he is like supposed to testify about his coup like you know so so things have really shifted um you know obviously we there's also been other other shifts some of which are good um you know i think the tone of the internet has become more i know that it's become more sensitive and i know that people you know there's a disadvantage in the whole like cancel culture and you know people feel like they can't really necessarily say anything but the pot you know say just anything that they want without there being consequences but and i think for for a lot of people that has definitely stifled the conversation in some ways appropriate and not but i also think that the good thing about that is that people become much more sensitive and inclusive in their in their language and their thinking and i think that that can only you know, once toned down, you know, the way, you know, the sort of like rabid nature of the internet, I think that the idea of thinking and speaking inclusively is really something that people should aim for. So that really, I think, has been a big change, a very big change, that whole trend. I I, think there's so many things that have changed. I don't even like know where to start. The Kardashians, like that whole thing, you know, (laughs) How recent, like, when did you get into podcasting? And like, when did Betches get into podcasting? So I feel like that has just exploded. And if you look at my Apple and my Spotify, it's every Betches category there is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we started in 2015 with the app Betches podcast, which is the three of us just shooting the shit and talking about culture. Um, So that was our first foray. Um, you up was 2016. Um, our third podcast died at Star Spar was 2017. And I mean the podcast industry, quote unquote, has really exploded. So I mean, now there's a podcast for anyone, anything. I think the way people listen has evolved, especially during the pandemic. And um, but I think that's okay. I think that's a good thing. Um, but yeah, we we really think podcasting you know, social media is obviously amazing and can give you so much reach, but podcasting, we particularly think is very fitting to who we are as the brand, where we want to have like funny, honest, unfiltered conversations about, you know, anything under the sun. Um, And I think podcasting just adds an additional nuance, opportunities for different types of humor that you can't always get online or on social media so yeah I mean it really is a great a great medium for us yeah there's I I love podcasting I mean Brittany like when we first started this I was like 
oh, it's going to be a lot of extra work. It's going to, but it literally, like, I get so excited to record episodes because we just chat. Like it's all very candid and it's a super easy way to get out information rather than like, it's such a relief than being behind your phone all the time, like having to post content, you know? Totally. And you can really be much more nuanced and um, connect with the audience in a way that is, is just different than social media. I think especially in the health space, um, there, the way that, concepts that are really nuanced like intuitive eating Mm -hmm. body image body neutrality the way a lot of those concepts are um communicated on social media just does not lend itself to like an accurate understanding and portrayal of these things because you're consuming like three seconds if even three seconds of that content and here you can have a real conversation you can watch people evolve you can there's like a real um just a different type of value you can get completely laura and i we actually recorded like what actually is intuitive eating because if you type in intuitive eating in the hashtag on instagram it's literally like thin dietitians eating donuts noom ads and Eat whatever you want, when you want. And there is no real space for the nuance behind all these topics that you're mentioning. Right. Well, that's where I went wrong, I would say, in doing intuitive eating, which um, sort of, yeah, like led to a whole, to where I am now. But it went, I, I think I did it wrong. And I did it because I didn't have the guidance. You know, I read the book, but, you know, I didn't have the guidance of, you know, a book is open to how you interpret it. I didn't have the guidance of a dietitian and now I do. And it has become very, it's kind of become like a new, a new situation. And it's, I feel now that I understand it completely differently uh, than I did in the beginning. Yeah. What are some ways in which you feel like you have like a better grasp of it now or what are some things that surprised you as you started working with the dietitian or you know reading more and consuming more content um I think that a lot of the I think something that I found interesting was that a lot of the like principles that help you actually eat intuitively are things that diets have have taught me or tried to tell me to do but the difference is that it was in the service of weight loss which led to like obsession and disordered thoughts and beliefs and dysmorphia rather than leading to how to properly nourish myself in a way that actually does make sense um and also like I really took the I think in the beginning I was super reactive against diet culture. Like everything was like a rebel. I did it as a rebellion and whatever, like that's who I am. That's what I needed to do. Maybe that is what I, I, I don't know if I could have gotten by without that rebellion, mm-hmm. but I, it also coincided with like the darkest days of the pandemic. So I had my wedding and I was like, okay, after this, I'm doing it to meeting. That right. was like end of August, right. 2020. And the darkest days of the pandemic were basically like fall and winter, I would say 2020 to 2021 and watching, I just, I recall like watching the election and having like, like so much food that I was like, I was like, I'm just, and I was up all hours eating right. it and I was like, oh, well, like I'm in the mood for this, you know? Um, 
and it's really stressful. So I gained like a lot of weight. I I think that I potentially like activated my like PCOS condition or, you know, entered a place where I, with my weight, where it was active, you know, activated. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Um, and I just think I did it like as a rebellion that I needed to like have as much of all the foods that I had demonized for so long. Yeah. And I used to believe that I could have them no matter what. And, um, that now but that did work. Like I did sort of break the spell of these foods. Yes. Um, and that was necessary. So really, yeah, that's kind of, that was a big misconception. Yes. Um, and I think it's, by the way, that is a really common thing to happen. It certainly happened to me. And I feel like it's happened to most of my clients that I work with. When you've been told no so many times to certain foods, the moment you give yourself permission, all hell breaks loose because you're like, I can eat whatever the hell I want and I don't have to adhere to any said diet. So once habituation actually comes in and you're like, oh, like I can eat this when I want. I don't need to finish the entire bag. It changes everything, but it's really hard to see that when you're still on the dieting side of things, because that's just so opposite of what we've been taught for so many years. Yeah. All it, it's kind of sad when the food isn't, um, exciting anymore. Like, I miss, I genuinely miss the way I like that. I believed a pizza could cure me. Like, you know, yeah. (laughs) Like now I don't have a thing that I believe can cure me. Yeah. So that sucks. (laughs) Um, Right. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's crazy the way, I mean, I also kind of approached intuitive eating that way because I, I didn't know anything about it um, before I started it. And it was almost like this all in approach, right? Um, Where it's just like, it's almost like I went to the other side of the spectrum. Like you said, the rebelling, right? Of like, F it. I'm just going to eat whatever I want, whenever I want with no rhyme or reason. And sometimes it has to start off that way for some people. Some people are able to incorporate it a little bit differently, but um it's just crazy the the language around intuitive eating and how it is going to stay that way forever which what i call like the honeymoon phase right where you're getting used to these foods and allowing yourself them and you mentioned the PCOS too like i think there's this huge association with PCOS being like a weight thing when chances are you were probably maybe it was overeating maybe it was binging or just like it was a different kind of unhealthy relationship with food. I don't know. I'm potentially putting no, words totally. in But um, like that, because binging is a huge, has a huge thing to do with like your blood sugar and cortisol levels and all the things. And that can potentially impact PCOS as well. That too. Plus, I think that something that occurred to me is that I think probably there's a very high, as I was doing this research, there's a very high correlation between eating disorders and PCOS. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how complicated is it to think that, you know, girls who hit puberty, they have PCOS, they have their higher weight because of this. The condition is not diagnosed or even suggested. And instead of thinking like, why is this person overweight? it's like lose weight. And then that starts you on the diet cycle for probably 
the next maybe 20 years. And all along you had PCOS, which made you heavier, which then made it harder for you to gain, to lose weight, which made dieting more extreme for you probably. Yeah. Yeah. Combining it with obviously like the messaging and it's like the lack of healthcare. I don't want to say it's like, because even if you have healthcare, this doesn't get explored. And I know so many people who, I have a lot of friends even that I know personally who are just figuring out as they're trying to get pregnant that they have PCOS or they have yeah. some other condition. Mm-hmm. And these are people who struggled with their weight. And um, even my mom, like, finding this out I was like well do you think that you maybe had this and just never because she has the same exact like weight conditions everything right. is me. I was like and she's like actually now that you're like saying it I do think that I that I might have um so I yeah I think that there was a lot of blame for myself like my metabolism slow like I'm I eat unhealthy no, I had a condition. It was un, you know, unaddressed right. and I don't feel like it's my fault. And that's great. That's amazing. Cause it's not your fault. And PCOS is also like, it's quite common among women. And I, I, I will say, I think part of the issue with not diagnosing PCOS is so many people are put on birth control too at such a young age and that masks a lot of the symptoms that PCOS might show. So I feel like that also right. is something, unless you have you know hair growth or things that are really obvious to PCOS, it can get, you know, not diagnosed for a while. Right. And I mean, I said this on other podcasts, but that's one of the things I think is the most interesting is that if I had had unattractive hair growth or, you know, male pattern baldness, I would have a hundred percent gone and investigated what was wrong Mm -hmm. because I was, because I would have conditions that would have prevented me from achieving the beauty standard. And so then I would have investigated why is this happening? But because I didn't have these, I just thought, Oh, like I have weight and anxiety and like, right. whatever, these are my normal issues. Right. Yeah, right. These are my <laughs> normal issues. They're unrelated to anything else. Mm-hmm. But if I had, had those other conditions, I would have figured it out because I would have been like, Oh my God, this is really fucking up my photos, you know? <laughs> and that's fucked up. I'm not saying that's like a good thing, but I'm saying that it says a lot about what gets diagnosed and why. Yeah. So what led you to this PCOS diagnosis? What led you to actually end up investigating it? Well, I, I had tried to, my husband and I had tried to freeze embryos and there was no, I mean, everything up until the final results of the embryos was of like how many we got was everything was quote unquote normal, like textbook, the levels quote unquote of my hormones, whatever, everything seemed very normal up until the end. And there were no like good quote unquote embryos. If you're familiar with it, they like grade them, whatever. And that was sort of confusing because like, it was just unexpected based on everything prior. Right. So after that, she, we were going to do it again. Like we thought like, oh, it'll be just a fluke. Like, um, this won't happen again. This happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. But so we were 
monitoring. So you have to start, I was going to do another cycle, whatever, but you have to start like right a certain amount of days after you get your period. Mm-hmm. So we're monitoring for my period and it's not coming. And I'm thinking, am I pregnant from like the one time I suffered <laughs> control? Oh, and another thing is that I chose to go off birth control. You have to go off for the cycle. I was going to ask you that. Okay. Yeah. You have to go off for the cycle. So I went off for the first cycle and then I just didn't go back on, but I could have. And if I had gone back on, this probably still would have gone unaddressed, unknown, but I just sort of was like, on some level, I'm like, I just don't want to go back on it. Like it's annoying. And then I realized that like my mood was better. My sex drive was better. So I was like, you know what? Now I'm not going back on this. Wait, so it was better not being on birth control. Correct. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to not go on beyond this anymore. Um, and then we were going to do the other cycle. So it all just sort of happened a little bit by accident and I wasn't getting my period and I went in for blood work and that is when we started to find it. Wow. And how, what was like your initial reaction? Like, did you feel relief? Were you like, what the fuck? Like, why did nobody tell me this until my thirties? Like what was, yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely a mix of those two things, like relief. I would say it was mostly relief and like, what the fuck? Not a little bit, a small amount of like worry, but really much less worry. Um, cause I know how treatable it is. I know that I don't have a severe case of it. Um, and I feel very lucky and grateful and privileged that I have access to doctors and I can like go do acupuncture and, you know, try different things and not worry about, you know, it's, it's very, obviously the whole process of this is incredibly expensive. Like the, the little blood work you got the bill for $150, like that's, it just all adds up. And if you don't have the money to pursue this, or even like, even if you have the money, but it's like uncomfortable, right. You don't, you're not going to want to keep pursuing these answers. Right. So yeah, I, I honestly have jokes that like, if I were just a little bit more frugal and didn't agree to do the second egg freezing, then I wouldn't have figured this out because I wouldn't have been tracking my period that closely. Right. Right. It's crazy. So how did the second freezing go? Did you get good? It didn't happen yet. So it didn't happen yet because we decided we're going to treat the PCOS, see if I can get my period to be regular. Right. Right. And then do it maybe like later in a few months. So yeah. And the PCOS is so nuanced in the diet culture world, right? Go gluten-free, go Mm -hmm. dairy-free, all the things. How have you navigated that alongside your intuitive eating journey? So, I mean, there has definitely been a lot of like, you go on, you know, the forums and people say like, I went vegan and it was the only thing that worked and whatever. Okay. So I can take all of that with a grain of salt, whatever. I did go to, you know, I have my intuitive eating dietitian who, you know, was amazing. I spoke to her about it. My doctor herself was like, I don't believe she put me on medication, which has made me, I think made me lose weight. I don't weigh myself, but based on clothing. Right. Um, so she has, she put me on medication. She was like, this will make you lose weight. I don't like to prescribe weight loss for PCOS because I'm prescribing something that's incredibly difficult based on your condition to cure condition. And it just leads again to like eating disorders. It makes it worse. I mean, she didn't say that, but I'm, we are now acknowledge that. Um, right. So, or in my case, it would not for everybody, obviously. Right. Um, 
you know, I spoke to an, I, when I first went to the acupuncturist and when I went to another dietitian who like specializes in this, just to, from the fertility clinic who, you know, she just, they'll see you as like a consultation with her. All, a lot of their recommendations were like, eat like very specific eating things. And a lot of them were very like diety. Um, and just like, it's very specific, like eat warm foods, not cold foods, like warm coffee, not cold coffee, protein, no processed sugar, carbs, all this shit. And I was just like, okay, we've been here before, you know, this is not going to work. So I think the most helpful thing I had was that I had the advocacy that I had like trained myself to say to those people, by the way, I'm dealing with a history of pretty severely disordered eating. And some of these, some of these recommendations are a little bit concerning to me that I could like take them too far or that they could make me sort of rebel against them They're And when you say that, like, they know, like they're, they're aware I am not the first person with disordered eating to cross their path. So they usually like sort of like step back or, or not like they, they're not going to be like disregard it completely, but they're going to be like, okay, we'll just maybe take, you know, take it one thing at a time and uh, you know, one meal or whatever at a time and try to just incorporate some of these suggestions, like try to add warmer vegetables when you can rather than raw ones like stuff like that try to make sure you have a protein first thing in the day like things that are not that bad you know they're not um incredibly restrictive right so that has been that has been really helpful um I now feel like I have like a little bit of practice so my at first I react kind of strongly to those rules but at this point I feel like I do have a little bit of practice being like okay well this is just a suggestion it is to help me it is not for the sake of weight loss. It is right. not telling me that I'm inadequate if I don't do this. So I just think that I've had a lot of preparation for dealing with that, but I know that you can really get lost in some of the strictness of those recommendations because people will take it really far. Especially so, if it's, yeah. if they feel like they're, they have a hundred percent control over their health or their symptoms when really like the research for most conditions, like, yeah, like this could potentially be helpful. Like adding some gentle nutrition could be beneficial, but it's not all or nothing. And I think that's where people get lost because of course you want to do everything to make you feel good. But right. a lot of people take that to like the next degree. Yeah. And also it's like, I think a lot of people develop their eating disorders at first because of this, because mm -hmm. of things like this. Um, because they think they're pursuing health or they think they're treating a condition and they are, that's legitimately what they are, but it becomes, you know, an obsessive thing. It becomes not about treating the condition and yeah, it's, it's very difficult, but I think that having practitioners who are aware of, you know, your history and you have to be vocal about yeah. things. That's what I've learned. Like you as a patient, they don't know who they're talking to. You have to be really vocal about how these things make you feel and what you're dealing with. And it's okay. Like they know that you're not the worst case to cross their paths. I was like, right. I mean, I almost always say no to getting my weight taken. And then the nurse yeah. is 
like they get taken aback. They're like, okay. I'm like, yeah, I just, I don't need to get my way taken at like my eye doctor appointment. Like you don't need to know. Oh, <laughs> at this point, I'm just like, I, I'll just say like, I don't, I, yeah, at this point I'm just practice at it. And I'm like, okay, I'm never going to, what am I, what am I going to see? This isn't a curb your enthusiasm episode where I'm going to see this nurse and encounter them. Right. And like, it's going to become a whole fucking thing. Like right. I just need to get through this minute of discomfort. If even, right. Sometimes they're just like, okay, no problem. And they literally it's over. Right. Right. It, this isn't going to come back and haunt you. Just say, you're it. not going to run into them like on the subway. Right. And even if they do, they're not going to be like, you are the one who didn't step on the scale. Like it just doesn't, it's there's, we are so much more self-conscious from years of the buildup to the day when you ask to not have your weight taken as right. a doctor. Like, right. yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think it is a blessing that you like, obviously it would have been great to have this diagnosis earlier. Right. But at the same time that you've been able to kind of explore intuitive eating beforehand, because like you said, I mean, conditions, IBS, PCOS, for me, it was anxiety. I thought I was going to cure my anxiety, by not eating sugar. Like, you know, all of these conditions. <laughs> yeah. LOL is right. Like <laughs> insane. Um, obviously made it much worse, but all these conditions can really perpetuate this. Like we have full control over our health with food and food is medicine. And like, yes, it can be a beautiful addition to like add more vegetables or like add more fiber. Right. But it's not the end all cure all. And that's why we have these all or nothing mindsets because of everything that we hear in the media and all of the headlines that are so polarizing. It's like this girl cut out sugar and now she never had a panic attack again. This girl cut out gluten and her, she's like completely cured of PCOS. Right. So it's, it's just this perpetuation of like, we're able to cure everything. And it's, that's not the case. Well, what I realized is that like a lot of these the, the, the seed of advice that diets and diet, that diets are giving or the diet culture rules, quote unquote, those are like not bad rules. Like there's nothing wrong with those rules as just recommendations. Like I'm sure if we, if you did cut out or minimize gluten or minimize whatever thing, like you would see a positive effect. That's not the question. I'm not like denying that those things are good. But I think when you overlay like the way we approach things in America onto these diet recommendations or these habits, you get a whole other something. It it, it just doesn't like mix. Right. Just the right. way that it like it's driven by like consumption of some other food it's driven by consumption of a product or it's driven by consumption of a diet and because and and then you have sort of like these media images that push a body standard that is on unatta- unattainable and you know patriarchal assumptions about what a woman needs to look like when you combine all of those things you get it's no longer just oh like minimize gluten for for your, for your, uh, metabolic health. Right. It's, it's all these other things. Yes. Yeah. There's a, there's a story attached to it. Right. And then mm-hmm. it's your whole history. And then it's like what your mom said to you. And then it's right. you called you <laughs> in fifth grade. And like, I mean, I like, yeah. <laughs> generally, I love my grandma so much, but growing up, she would say to Missy, my sister, she's like, Oh, 
look at her body, look at her body. And then she would say to me like, and look at her face. But then she would never say anything about my body. She'd only say things about my sister's body. That shit sticks with you. <laughs> like it does. It no, it, it really does. Yeah. It um it completely changes your relationship with compliments, with comments, you know, grow especially I think with a simple like a sister who had this and you would get, you know, you have a grandma who you're the pretty one and you're the skinny one. Like, and then your whole life regardless of what you objectively look like to people, you're always a pro your French you're in your friend group. Now you're the, you're not the skinny one, even if you like kind of are. Right. You know? Right. Yes. And yeah. It, yeah. And I think even receiving compliments from others, like you're then almost like waiting for them constantly. So if, if you're used to getting certain compliments and that's why I think with weight loss, which becomes so problematic is when you're constantly looking for that external validation. And then whether like you regain the weight or people just stop complimenting because you maintained whatever habits you, you know, you've gotten yourself into that people then start to like second guess themselves. Like, wait, do I like not look good to them anymore? Like they're not like complimenting me anymore. They're not commenting. Right. Well, that's when people uh, go to uh, face tune thirst traps on the internet, because like, if you can't get it, you know, why not try, try strangers? Like if, if no one, if no one in your immediate life is noticing. Right. Then get the compliment. I, I've never facetuned. I don't even know how to. Oh, good. Yeah. I, I, like, I used to facetune. I stopped yeah. like for maybe three. When did I stop? I stopped like prior to 2020. Cause I remember thinking like we're stopping end of 2019, middle 2019. I stopped facetuning. So like pre-pandemic. Pre before a bit before like before the pandemic, I was not face tuning anymore. But also like um, during the pandemic, there was like nothing to face tune because you were just sitting. It was even on like it was like, earlier no than leaving. that. Yeah, it was definitely like it was sometime I think in like 2019 that I stopped face tuning. Did you skinny um, app or just your face? I would use the face tune app. Just and um. It doesn't like, does it skinny you or are you just like blur? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think that the Facetune technology has increased actually since I was, since my day of Facetuning. Because um, I know people use the, like an app that stretches your whole body out to make the whole thing just look longer yes. and thinner. That I think came after my Facetuning day. Um, yeah. God. yeah, I definitely did the like skinny apping stuff. It wasn't called the skinny app. I don't even know what it's called, but what? it's just insane. Like when I look back on those photos, my body dysmorphia was so bad. I was like, did I actually think that looked good? Yeah, mine was really bad. And I look back now at, I look back now at photos from, you know, it's 2018, 2019, 2017, whatever. And I, the most interesting ones are the ones where you thought that you looked fat and like were so embarrassed of. And now I look at this photo and I'm like, what, where, where? Like what did I think was the fat? Like the fact that I was sitting down and like my shirt wrinkles, the fact that my arm is not an actual stick. Like what did I think? Mm -hmm. My size objectively was like, a small size for my bone structure. Like, right. you know, I've never been a petite person, so I'm never going to be a size two, even if I have, you know, I don't understand what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the issue is 
regardless of what someone's bone structure is or the way their bodies appear, they're constantly comparing themselves to someone who is a size two. When in reality, like you're, there is such a thing as body diversity, like regardless of how much you're eating and exercising, like it's just physically impossible to look certain way. Yeah. I did not understand that. Like, same, like internally at the time, but now I do feel that I do think that, I mean, my, the PCOS diagnosis indicated to me that my body is at a weight that was not healthy for me. Mm -hmm. Um, it's evident in my blood work evident in my cycle. And so for that reason, I started thinking a lot about like haze and I, I, I do believe that like some, like that every single person's personal body weight and body set point is different. So maybe some people could be healthy, quote unquote, at that weight that I was, but I was not healthy. Right. I don't know what weight I am. I am not healthy at that weight. Mm -hmm. Um, I know literally I have no idea what my weight even really ballpark is at this moment. Um, zero idea. So I think that, you know, I am not healthy at that weight. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm on medication. I'm trying to like, I'm not trying to lose weight. I'm not actually doing anything to try to lose weight, like Mm -hmm. other than take medication and try to move more in general. I was going to say, based on like just following you on Instagram too, you're engaging in certain behaviors too. Like I know movement has been something that you've evolved in your relationship with and how for so many people, when they stop dieting, like they stop moving because they're like, this is so correlated to diets. And I know right. that Avi is an active yeah. person too. And yeah, yeah same thing with <laughs> Jeremy, um, yeah. <laughs> but I'm curious, like how has your relationship to like movement evolved and it, being able to like incorporate gentle nutrition in a way that feels good for you without it feeling like you're going back into another diet? Yeah. I mean, I just don't, I used to like make myself do it every day and I would feel anxious until I did it. Now I'm like, I don't care if I do it or I don't like, it doesn't matter what time of day I do. It's not like a to do. Um, I went to my first workout classes since before the pandemic in the past week. And I just felt so different in them because they used to be not enjoyable because I would be torturing myself the whole time. Like go as hard as you can the whole time, or you won't burn enough calories, like whatever. Right. And I went to, I went to rumble like this weekend with Avi and, and I was like, I don't care what they're like, obviously I'm doing the patterns, but like, I'm getting more into like the music and it's dark. And I'm like, no, I don't care what anyone thinks if I'm punching well, like, this is just fun. I'm going to just like do it at the pace I like. And it was just like fun and easy. It wasn't like torture. Right. Um, so I think just not thinking about movement as like a requirement and something that needs to be like gone so hard at for torture to a torturous point in order to maximize. Yeah. Um, really? Yeah. But it makes me feel like, okay, if I were to get back to like a weight that was more steady for me, I actually could like appreciate it now and not feel like I need to get thinner or, you know, yeah. And that's also because too, when you're focusing on your relationship to food and not exclusively your relationship to your weight and what your weight is, there's a greater appreciation also for just like how your body works and how you feel when you eat certain foods and, you know, move a certain way versus strictly just looking at the scale. And it's, right. it's a prison. Like when you're constantly just weighing yourself every day or it, it literally is a mental hell. It is. It really is. It, just limits, I think, 
it's like the it invisible someone calls it like the invisible light thief maybe i don't remember who said that it was uh, chrissy harrison calls it the light yeah mm-hmm. yeah it does it puts you in a prison where you can't enjoy anyone or anything around you to the extent that is possible and you don't even realize it because you've been that way for so long and it's generational like think yeah. about grandparent like grandma's moms, even dads, like whoever, like there is such a generational dieting aspect to it. Like this is so normalized in our culture. Yeah. True. Especially for Jews with their like, Oh yes. That's a whole thing you could dive into. Literally could be a full other episode. Yeah, yeah totally. Seriously and though. You mentioned the workout scene. I think that for me was a huge, like, again, perpetuation of like, just feeding into this culture that like, you have to look perfect when you work out. I did soul cycle all the time. I still love it. But the instructors I was going to is like, you can't be in my front row unless you're hitting every single beat, unless you're like this perfect. It's just like, I got yelled at. Yeah. I mean, honestly, (gasps) I mean, honestly, though, the something that and I do not mean to offend anyone who is a workout instructor. I do not understand like the fetishization of workout instructors that has been that even when I was super into like working out, like I did not understand that. Like I never booked based on the instructor. I do not care who instructs me. I literally was in and out for the purpose of the workout. And I don't know. I just feel like people are like put a little bit too much of a premium on what your instructor thinks. I, I swear, and again, I think, I'm like a school yeah. girl. Like I'm a teacher girl. I care about my teachers. Right. So <laughs> yeah. I, there's something about spin classes that people become infatuated okay. with like their soul cycle instructor or their Peloton instructor. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I I feel like it. it's like a different world. That was literally me in soul cycle. I mean, it was, it's insane. I don't get it now. Cause I'm like, what, what was I trying to achieve? Right. And it's, it, I think it's right. like, I think it's like this acceptance in this like high society thing, right? You want to be like a part of it. And I, now that I step out and I look and I'm like, I literally want nothing to do with that. Like these people are just all insecure in themselves. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of status markers like associated with it. I mean, starting with the fact that we're like in New York boutique fitness scene and, you know, thinness, wealth, all, you know, who you socialize with, all of that sort of comes to a head in classes. So there's a lot of different components to it. Yeah, completely. So Sammy, where can people find you? Oh my god. There's obvious everywhere. Sammy on Instagram at Sammy Sage says on TikTok. And um, you can listen to the morning announcements every morning where I break down the news in five minutes or less. Love it. Um, with comments about what's happening. And that is everywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm on the app Betches podcast with my co-founders. We talk pop culture. I'm on the Betches Sub podcast where I'm on that like maybe once or twice a week where we talk in-depth politics um where c-span needs the group chat c-span needs the group chat yeah exactly um so yeah those are all the places i feel like there's a lot you could a lot you could find me doing yeah amazing well thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me this has been fun Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Food Therapy. If you enjoyed what you heard and want to support our podcast, please subscribe, hit download, and share it with your community. We value your feedback. If you feel inspired, please leave a review. Let us know what you've learned and what you would like to hear next. 
All information about this episode will be linked in our show notes. New episodes of Food Therapy come out every Sunday, but you can stay connected with Food Therapy all week long by following us on Instagram at Food Therapy Pod. As a disclaimer, this podcast should not replace therapy or working with a registered dietitian. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.